Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. And if you don't know me, my name is Mike Mitchell, and I will be leading the class for the month of July as Joe is vacationing and on missions trips and elsewhere. Well, let's open with a word of prayer and we'll get going. Father, thank you for allowing us to gather here this morning, Father, with like-minded believers. It's a precious gift that we don't want to take lightly. Father, we are so grateful to be here, to be in your house with our brothers and sisters and to learn and to open up your word and to sing praises to you. May everything that we do and say, Father, this morning be glorifying to your son, Jesus. It is in his most precious name that we pray. Amen. What would you say the number one problem with the church today is? Brief answers. What is what, some of the biggest problems with the church in America? The people in it. The people in it. <laughs> Don't address political issues. Anybody else? Not in spirit and truth. Anybody else? Yes. Controversy. Let me even go one step further. What is the church? Is the church the leaders? The church is the people. Keeping that in mind, what is wrong with the church, the people that make up the church? They're in the world. They're sinners. Not in God's word enough. All those are great answers. As I was developing lessons for the month of July, one of the things that I thought about was, to me, one of the problems with the people that make up the church in America today, I feel like, is that they go to church to get rather than to give. Think about why people change churches. What are some of the reasons people change churches? Music. Don't want to hear the negative. They want uplifting, you know, emotionally good feeling messages. Nobody's reached out to me. Nobody said hello. Nobody invited me to their house. Those are all good things that I think are true. And what, what do they have in common? They have because me. It's, it's, what about, it's about me. What do I want from church? What do I need as a person to get from church? And as I thought about that, I actually was led to Romans chapter 12. So if you want to be turning there, that's where we're going to be looking at for the next few weeks is Romans chapter 12. And I started developing these lessons before Jim Jensen was teaching Romans 6. That was not planned. This was coincidental. So we're still in Romans, but we're going to move ahead from chapter 6 to chapter 12. And the verses that we're going to look at, we're going to begin in the very beginning of Romans chapter 12. And the verses we're going to look at over the next several Sundays are in complete opposition to this frame of thinking. We are going to look at verses where Paul lays out plainly that the key to productive and satisfying Christian life is not about focusing on what we are to get from God, but how much more we are to give to the Lord. So let's begin by reading Romans chapter 12. I'll begin by reading verses 1 and 2. Many of you probably have these memorized. Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove that what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. 
Now, as you read these verses, you can immediately see that one of the central themes of these verses is that it involves worship. And not just any worship, but a supreme act of worship. And I like to title my lessons because it helps me. I come up with a lesson, an outline, and a title. And then as I think about it, I think about that title. It helps me through the weeks as I, as I develop the lessons. And I titled this lesson, the next several lessons, actually Extreme Worship. And I picked the word extreme because I looked up the definitions of extreme. Some of the definitions of extreme are going to great lengths, radical, being in or attaining the greatest or highest degree, extending far beyond the norm. And I thought about things like extreme sports, extreme weight loss programs, extreme home makeover, all designating what? Something that goes beyond the norm. I want that. I want my worship of the living God to be so much better than normal. I don't like mediocrity. God doesn't like mediocrity. God doesn't like lukewarm. So these verses give us a view of what is involved in extreme worship. Worship that goes way beyond the norm. Worship of the highest degree. So as I outlined this text for me and looking at different commentaries and things, I found three things in these verses that show us that are to be involved in this extreme worship. And the three things are the body, the mind, and the will. So after spending 11 chapters detailing all of what God has done for us, Paul now turns his attention to what we are to give back to God. He shows us that, that basically that God wants all of us. That we are to worship him by giving him our all. He doesn't want an act of worship, but that true worship demands all of ourselves. Present our bodies a living sacrifice. Be transformed by the renewing of our minds that we may prove what the will of God is. So we are to give God our bodies, our minds, and our wills. I thought about the couple of scriptures. I know one's in Matthew 22 where Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? What was his answer? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, and your mind. That's right. And that's give it all. That encompasses everything that we are. That reminded me of that scripture. But before we can get into the three things, the ingredients of extreme worship, we have to cover a very important first step, and that is the proper motivation. There's always a proper motivation behind anything great that is accomplished in life. Look again at verse 1. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, before we can begin this great act of worship, the way this verse describes, we have to have a proper motivation. Many people worship God, but it's not always out of the proper motivation. Only the ones with the proper motivation can, can actually worship God the way he wants us. To worship, And the choice of words he uses here, I think, are very important. It tells us that this, what's going to happen, is built on something. And where do I get that? <clears throat> I get that from the word therefore. What does therefore mean when you find it in Scripture? When, the, when you come across the word therefore, it's always telling you what's coming is based on what came before. And that is a very, very important word, therefore. 
One of the commentaries I read said something I really liked. I picked up on it said that there's a whole world view wrapped up in this word. Therefore, it tells us what's coming is based on what's coming behind. And there's a whole world view wrapped up in that word. Therefore, and as I meditated on that, um, when I was doing my daily devotions, I always try to meditate on the passages and I've meditated on that. I came up with some personal examples of how that has been acted out in my own life. Um, When Terry and I had only been married a few years, I was in my mid-20s. I was working at a grocery store. I was the assistant manager at Winn-Dixie. I was next in line to get the promotion to store manager. Um, I would have been the youngest store manager in in our whole division. But there was a problem. Terry and I were very young Christians, and those of you who work retail know how straining retail environment can be on a on a family life because I worked every weekend I worked almost every Sunday I was not able to go to church with my family and I thought that this is what I wanted to do as a career but as I saw the strain on my family and I was a young on fire Christian who wanted to be in church on Sundays I wanted to be active in in the church and the ministries and it seemed like every time I had something planned it was thwarted because of where I worked And so I made the decision that I was going to quit, and I just started a carpet cleaning job. And assistant manager for Winn-Dixie 30 years ago was a very high-paying job for that type of of position. And I quit and started cleaning carpets, making minimum wage probably, and most of my friends thought I was nuts. But it was because, therefore, I did this based on something. So... What my point is that we make decisions not out of thin air. We make them based on our worldview, based on our motivations. So you have to examine your motivations and your worldview and make sure that you are lining those up with Scripture. We had another neighbor about that same time frame that lived next door to us. And Terry, I decided, you know, I was working at Winn-Dixie, but I was also delivering papers in the morning. And sometimes, and once I started cleaning carpets, I started a pizza job. I was working like three jobs. And my wife was staying home with the children. And we had a neighbor who would come over and spend time with Terry, and she was witnessing to her. And she would say things like, I would give anything if I could stay home with my kids. But they drove really expensive cars. They lived in a really big house. And as I thought about that, and Terry used to want to say, you can, you just choose not to, you know, and I'm not saying that everybody needs to do a certain way. But my point is, there's a therefore, their worldview, their motivation was different from ours. And the therefore dictates. So as we think about and go into Romans chapter 12, you're going to see that Paul begins to lay out a way of living, how we should be responding, how our worship of God includes our actions. And it's based on this word, therefore. It has roots. It has grounds. It has a place that we're drawing that from. It's not just comes up out of thin air. In counseling ministry that I'm involved in, I find it quite common to find that many people's problems are a result of building their life on the wrong motivations, on the the wrong worldview. I'm counseling a man right now um, from another church who built his life and his career on the motivations of getting ahead financially. And he became a Christian, but he didn't really change. His worldview did not cause him to change the way he was living his life. And he was never home. He traveled all the time. He neglected his wife. He neglected his kids. Everything was about money. 
And now he's reaping the consequences of that. He has been convicted that it was wrong. He is now trying to turn and he's back involved in church. He's, you know, praying. He's doing devotions. He's trying to get his life together. But his life's on a totally different path because he's not been a spiritual leader. He's led his family down a wrong path. And he is now reaping what he has sown. But it was because his motivations, what became his therefore, was was not motivated by the correct things. How many of you, when your parents, when you asked your parents the question why, you heard the response, because I said so? <laughs> Angie, don't answer that. <laughs> I'm not used to having a child in, in my class with me. Sometimes we do that. We're guilty of that. And I think as parents, as grandparents, we should not, we should try not to the best of our ability to do that. Yes, kids should obey us because they respect us and and all of that. But we need to build the therefores into their life. Kids need to, when they think about how they should dress, who their friends are, sex, drugs, all those important topics that we need to be talking with our kids and our grandkids about, we need to give them the reasoning and the motivation and the therefore then becomes more of a natural part of their lives and not Christianity is not a list of rules for the sake of having rules. There's there's a reasoning and motivation that comes before them. So we need to be teaching our children those things. And there's a specific motivation in our text that Paul is talking about. Look again. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by what? The mercies of God. Paul is saying that our motivation to live a certain way is not because our spouse wants us to. It's not because our church tells us to. It's not even because we feel led to. There's a specific motivation, and that is the mercies of God. I have to admit that as a young Christian man, my intentions were were well intended, but they were not always made with the right motivation. We should be motivated by the mercies of God. What are the mercies of God? What is he talking about when he says the mercies of God? Well, they're incorporated in the whole 11 chapters of Romans that that he had been going over and teaching about. And as I looked at that, I thought, well, some of you know that my favorite chapter in the Bible is Romans 8. So I thought, well, we'll just look at Romans chapter 8 and just look at some of the mercies of God in Romans chapter 8. And I'll just briefly run down the list of some of the mercies of God. Romans 8, very first verse. There is now no condemnation. That's a mercy. We are no longer condemned. Verse 4 tells us that his mercy gave us the spirit so that we wouldn't continue to walk in the flesh. Verse 6. The mind set on the spirit is what? Life and peace. That's a mercy that we can have peace. Verse 14 and 15, if you flip over to 15, 14 and 15, it talks about us being adopted as sons. Verse 18 talks about us being glorified. Verse 26 says that the Spirit even intercedes for us because we don't even know how to pray the way we should. Verse 28, everybody knows all things work together for good to those who love God. Those who are called. Verse 29 talks about us being conformed to his image. 
And as you go through the rest of the chapter, you see that we are overwhelmed by the mercies of God as he shares how nothing can separate us from the love of God. No one can dim us or bring a charge against us that we conquer all things through him who loved us. And these are just the mercies of God listed in one chapter of Romans chapter 8. So we, have, we are overwhelmed by all of the mercies of God. And these are just a few of them. And Paul I think it's it's important to note that, you know, you can be motivated by a lot of things, but he chose the mercy of God to tell us that's what should motivate us. Can you be motivated by fear? Of course you can. I know people whose family life was motivated by fear or discipline. You know, you can can you get people to act a certain way by fear? How many of you have an employer that motivates by fear? You know, some, some people's employment attitude is do this and I'll fire you. Do this and, you know, and I'll come down on you. The, my wrath will come down on you. You can be motivated to act a certain way based on fear. But that doesn't transform your heart. That doesn't make you love the person and want to please the person. You do it for one reason, for because of that fear or the fear of wrath or judgment. But we have a Heavenly Father And the ultimate boss who loves us and cares for us so deeply that everything he does is for our good and for our benefit. And he gives us so many countless mercies that that should motivate us to worship him and to live a life that is pleasing to him. And that's what Paul is saying. In fact, what is our purpose as Christians? If somebody asks you, why, what is your purpose in life? What is your purpose as a Christian? Why are you here what is your simple, quick answer? So the word, testify the truth, glorify God. That's mine. I usually say my purpose in life is to glorify God. And, and that's true. All those things are true. There's many purposes we have. But ultimately, our purpose is to do his will and to bring him glory. But it can even be narrowly defined. Turn over to chapter 15 of Romans. And I came across a verse that talks about this, but even makes it more specific. Romans chapter 15, verse 8 and 9 says, For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. And here it is. And for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. We can narrowly, even narrowly, more narrowly define the give God glory for his what? For his mercy. That's what we're giving him glory for, his mercy. The aim of Romans, the aim of life should be to make the mercy of God look great among the nations. We are to glorify God for his mercy and it's revealed through Jesus Christ. That's our goal. As I was reading and rereading this chapter to prepare for the lessons, I was struck as I read on past these verses, as Paul begins to make applications to this, how we shall live our lives, and that's what he does as he goes down through chapter 12. He starts telling us how to live out our life. And I was struck by the fact of how many of them involved us showing mercy. Let's skim down through chapter 12 a little bit. Look at verse 8 of chapter 12 as he gets into this. He says in chapter 8, the one, the latter part of eight, he says, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. We are to show mercy. Verse nine, let love be without hypocrisy. 
Verse 13, contributing to the needs of the saints. That's mercy. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. That's showing mercy. Verse 15, the second part says, sweep with those who weep. That's mercy. Second part of verse 16 says, associate with the lowly. That's mercy. Verse 17, never pay back evil for evil. Verse 19, never take your own revenge. Verse 20, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. Those are all acts of mercy. And the word mercy implies not only forgiveness for the guilty, but also a compassion for the helpless and the desperate. And that's what we've been shown. We were needy and helpless, and we were also sinful. Look back at Romans chapter 5. There's a verse there that shows both sides of mercy. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 8. Paul says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You can see in this verse both sides of mercy. We were weak and helpless. That's one side. And we were guilty sinners. That's the other side. Mercy forgives the guilty and has compassion on the helpless. And we are called to build our lives on that. Question is, are we living our life from a deep spring of humble, broken-hearted joy in the mercy of God? I know I need help in this. If I was living my life this way, would I ever grumble and complain? Probably not. Would I ever get frustrated with people? Probably not. I would have more compassion. I want to live my life more in light of the mercy of God. And I think even as we see, I was thinking about what's going on in the news and thinking about our country. Anybody here frustrated what seems like what's going on in our country right now? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a little bit scary if we didn't know God was sovereign and in control just to watch what seems the last 10 years, I think, have been dramatic and where we've gone as a nation. And as you think about that, it's more and more godlessness, turning our back on God and principles and convictions, and we're seeing that we are reaping that. And as I think about that, and I think about the mercy of God, how much more are we going to have to display the mercy of God as we deal with the people around us, the neighbors around us, the employers, the workers around us, We're going to have to really have the feeling of mercy of God in our lives and be able to display that to the people around us. We're going to have to have more compassion than we've ever had because these are lost, godless people who don't know the Lord and they're dying and going to hell. And we need to have this mercy and compassion. But as I thought about that and as I read these verses, I I remembered, not realized, I knew it, but was reminded that mercy is not... Spineless. Look at verse 9. In verse 9 it says, verse 9 of chapter 12, back to chapter 12, when I was going through the list, talks about where it says, yeah, verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil. That's a strong word, abhor, hate, vehemently hate what is evil. So mercy is not spineless, but as you hate, poor what is evil, you do it, as you weep, 
there's a compassion and a tenderness that goes along with that. Mercy weeps while it hates. It doesn't repay evil for evil. It doesn't seek revenge. Mercy is not weak, but it is tender. So before we get into the three ingredients of extreme worship, we have to realize that there is extreme motivation that comes first. Before we will ever find ourselves giving everything, our bodies, our minds, our wills, before we give those to the Lord in total extreme worship, you have to have the proper motivation. It has to be from a deep spring of God's mercy in your life. And that's revealed through Jesus Christ. So we've seen the motivation. So back to our text, we'll move on to the first of the three ingredients. And our text tells us that our bodies are involved. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Paul tells us specifically to present our bodies. The word present, I think Jim actually used that in word in one of his definitions in chapter 6 a few weeks ago. And it's talked about that peristemi, which is present, is a term where the priest would lay something on the altar to be presented before God. And we, I think the Bible in First Peter calls us individually, we are priests. We are royal members of God's royal priesthood. We are priests and we are to present to God our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. The commentaries I read explained that this word used, the verb was imperative. Imperative means it's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not something you should try to do. It is a command that we are to present our bodies a living sacrifice. Of course, you're drawn back to the Old Testament laws about sacrifice when you start reading language like this. And I was reminded of how they needed to have a perfect and spotless sacrifice, not just any sacrifice would do. It had to be the best possible one. How many people here have a perfect body? Don't answer that. I'm looking forward to having a spiritual redeemed body, not because I'll be young and strong again, not because my shoulder won't hurt, my back won't hurt anymore, but because it will be unstained from sin. The fleshly sinful part of me will no longer be a drag on me. Paul doesn't tell us to give our souls as a sacrifice because our souls are already redeemed. But if you go back and read the previous chapters of Romans, especially, I think, chapter 7, you will find how Paul struggled with his fleshly body, how he talked about how hard it was to do the things he wanted to do. And his flesh is the humanness that resides in all our bodies, and our minds and our emotions, even our wills, are all encompassed within this physical body. Uh, one of my memory verses back a couple years ago was 1 Corinthians 9, 27, which stayed with me. It's where Paul says, I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest possibly after I've done all this, I myself should be disqualified. I buffet my body. Paul had to work at it, and we all do. And as I was reading, I was reminded that there was a Greek pagan teaching in the day and that this was written that still existed in the Roman world and that they thought that the spirit or the soul was inherently good and the body was inherently evil. And it really didn't matter what was done to it or by it because it really didn't affect the spirit. 
And as I study, I always think about how is that relevant today. And although that particular teaching is not really taught, I thought about how sometimes Christians, not realizing it, almost support this teaching. Have you ever heard anyone excuse their sin by saying, oh, that's just the way they are? That's his personality. He's just, he just is abrupt. He just says what he thinks. That's not biblical. But sometimes we excuse our sins by just saying that's a part of him. I actually had a person in counseling once tell me that his culture, that's the way his culture is. All so-and-so men, I won't name the nationality, but he said all so-and-so men are like that. And so basically he was excusing his sin based on the way God made him. So some people carry this kind of false teaching into their frame of thinking. We don't want to rationalize away our behavior, and Paul doesn't do that. Paul does not allow that teaching to come into his frame of mind. I remember back when I memorized Romans 8, one of the verses says that we are to put to death the deeds of the body. So he wouldn't tell us that if we couldn't do it. Put to death the deeds of the body. I think it was John Owen has a little book out, one of the Puritans, called Mortification of Sin. I don't know if any of you read that. That's a great little book. Mortification means put to death. And that's what we're supposed to do. And Jesus confirmed it. What did Jesus say in Matthew? He said, if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin or to stumble, pluck it out. Those are strong words. And he didn't mean it literally, but he wanted us to understand the importance of our sin, and we are admonished to kill it and put it to death. And Paul clearly taught that we are to control the body. He told the Corinthians that the body was not for immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. That's 1 Corinthians 6. We actually have time. Turn over there, 1 Corinthians 6, and we'll read that passage. He gets real specific. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I will begin to read in verse 12. The heading on my Bible says, The body is the Lord's. Chapter 6, verse 12 says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. Now, God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Now, we know that the Corinthians were involved in a lot of sexual immorality. By reading that and studying that, you'll remember that. And I think they were trying to justify it. John MacArthur, in his commentary, said that in the text, literally, it said, the belly for foods, the foods for belly. And it was like the Corinthians were contrasting This stomach was made for eating like our bodies were made for sex. But Paul stops them dead in their tracks by saying, you look, our stomachs are for food, but that's just temporary. God is going to do away with both of them. But the body, on the other hand, will be raised up and be eternal. We are told elsewhere in Scripture that our bodies will be transformed into a spiritual body and be conformed with the body of his glory in Philippians 3. So Paul makes it very clear That although we live in a body that is plagued by sin, by the power of God and the Spirit's help, we can make our unredeemed bodies slaved to our redeemed souls. 
One of the things that upsets me the most is when Christians are involved in immorality. I know that sin is all sin in respect of rebellion against God, but there seems to be something disgusting about sexual sin, and sadly it is so prevalent in the church today. And I know Lakeside is not immune to that. I know we have had that just like every other church has had that. Uh, We've had our share. And it makes me wonder if all of us fully understand this teaching about our bodies being the temple of the Holy Spirit. I suspect that any true Christian would not sit in the pew on Sunday and look at pornography on their iPad. They wouldn't go into a back room in the Sunday school class and have immoral sex with someone. That's disgusting to say something like that. But what's the difference? If our bodies are the Holy Spirit's temple and we engage in something like that, what's the difference? God's there with us as we do that. It's almost like that you're bringing God into your sin. Now, as I read that, you know, God can't be stained by our sin. And one of the commentaries used an example of the sun shining down on a garbage dump. The sun is not stained by the garbage dump, even though it's in its presence. But his image can be stained. God's image in the sense of the world's reflection can be stained in the sense of Christians, people who call themselves Christians, engaging in this sort of immorality. What was Paul's advice in Corinthians that we read? He said, flee immorality. Run. And that was a very strong word. Run from it. He doesn't say it's a test to overcome, a challenge to endure. He says, Run. As I thought about that, I was reminded of the story of Joseph. And when he remember when Joseph, he was basically approached by Potiphar's wife. And a couple of times she tried to entice him into having an immoral affair. And then I think second or third time she really came on to him really, really strong. And it said Joseph fleed. And he actually, she ended up having a piece of his garment. And he ran out of the room. Now he was ended up judged wrongly for that, but he didn't stick around. He flees from it. And that's what we are called to do. We are to flee. Our bodies are the temple of the Lord. So we are to present our imperfect bodies to the Lord as a living and holy sacrifice, our text says. As we go back to our text, present your bodies a living sacrifice, and it's to be a living sacrifice. Again, you keep going back to the Old Testament language. Dead sacrifices are no longer acceptable. Of course, you always think about Abraham and Isaac when you think about sacrifices. If Abraham had sacrificed Isaac on that altar and actually had gone through with it, had God not stopped him, Isaac would would have been a dead sacrifice. But God wasn't really enamored by the dead sacrifice. He wanted what? Abraham's obedience. That was what he was after. Was was Abraham willing to do whatever he said? He wants us to be living sacrifices. Now at this point, as I was doing this, some of the commentaries and different things I was reading and studying inserted great emotional stories into their thing. And I read one about a Chinese missionary that sold himself into slavery because all of his friends had been sold into slavery and he felt... Like he needed to be sold into slavery and he went and his his actions actually, it was actually a pretty dramatic story, but he actually won over 200 
of them to the Lord. But let's be honest. Most of us are not going to be great missionaries or do wonderfully big and mighty things. So what does it mean for us, the average Christian, to present our bodies as a living sacrifice? Keep in mind the context. We started out by saying we are to build our lives on something, specifically the mercy of God. And we are to use our bodies in a way that glorifies the mercy of God to the world. Have you ever thought about how God uses Christians to do his work? He could accomplish his work any way he wants to, but he uses people. And almost all of that involves our physical bodies, doesn't it? It involves our mouths, our hands, our feet, our minds. So our bodies are involved in carrying out the work of God through ministry. As you skim down in Romans chapter 12, you'll see the coming instructions. Verse 5 through 8 of Romans 12, he gets into talking about spiritual gifts. I'll just read uh, 5 through 8. And there are varieties of ministries in the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For the one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit. And he goes on, and he talks about spiritual gifts. He's talking about how we are to use our bodies as living sacrifices. We are to put them to work in the kingdom of God. So when you think about the home builders class being over at Wood Valley, they're using their bodies as a sacrifice. They're giving up their time on Saturday. to. They, I'm sure a lot of them would be rather doing other things. But because of the mercy of God, they feel led to be over at Wood Valley sharing with these people in this community. And there's multitude of examples of ministry going on just through the people that are here today. And that's how we act out involving our bodies. But it's so much more than that. It's, it's the way we present ourselves at work with our family, our friends, our neighbors. Shouldn't Christians be the best neighbors in the world? Shouldn't they be the best employees in the company? We are to be living sacrifice, giving our all. What does the Bible say? Do it as you are doing it unto the Lord. Not for the employer, not for the neighbor. You're doing it for the Lord. That is worship. Let's go on. Living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. What does the word holy mean? What is it word? If you narrowed it down, what does holy mean? Without sin, set apart. I think if you like to look it up, it's set apart for a special purpose. Holiness means set apart. We as a people are set apart for a special purpose. We're not to be like the rest of the world. And we're going to get into that next week as we talk about not conforming to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We're going to talk more about that. But we are to be set apart for a special purpose, holy and acceptable. Again, the Old Testament language of sacrifices. The sacrifice had to be perfect, right? In the sense of being perfect, you couldn't bring the bad, you know, animal or the, you know, the leftovers. It had to be the cream of the crop, and that's what we are to bring to the Lord, our best. I had to, to look at Malachi because I, I remembered the verse in Malachi one eight where they are actually reprimanded a little bit. Malachi 1.8, people weren't doing this. It says, but when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? When you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? 
Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? As I thought about that, I thought about another question. How has that happened in the church today? Are we guilty of not giving the Lord our best? Are our sacrifices sometimes the leftover? Are they are are they always the best? You know, you can make this real personal as you want it to be, but I just generally I thought about things like is the amount of money that we give to church, is it what's left over after the bills are all paid? Is it, you know, is it the leftover amount or is it the first portion right off the bat? Is your time for service in the kingdom and for God's work, is it what's left over after all everything else in your life that you have to do and want to do is done? Then if you have time to serve, you'll do it. God says that when we have the proper motivation of the mercies of God, that we will present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which means we'll give him the best of our time, the best. Of, and that doesn't mean everybody's spot in life is different. I'm not trying to condemn or criticize anyone, but you need to examine your motivations in life and your priorities in life. And we need to all I'm convicted that I'm not always doing this. I'm not always I, I'm really trying to get to a place where I am doing better in this and giving God more of my best. And I think that's what he's talking about today. Unfortunately, I think many times we fall short. Paul finishes this verse by saying, which is your spiritual service of worship. He says that we are living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto God, which is our spiritual service of worship. And I don't always turn to the King James, but I think they got it right on this one. King James says doesn't use the word spiritual. It uses the word reasonable service of worship. The word that's used there is logical. It starts with something like logic. I can't, I'm not much on Greek. I just read what the commentaries say, but it's logikos, which we get our word logic from. When you examine this and look at it logically, our only reasonable, logical outcome is that you're going to go there. You're going to give God this extreme worship because that's what else can you do logically? That's the, the context of this verse. Our worship using our bodies is certainly spiritual, but it is also our only reasonable, logical thing that we can do, which actually throws a curve into the title of my lesson, Extreme Worship. It's not really extreme. It may be extreme from the world's viewpoint. It may be extreme and radical from some people's perspective. But from God's perspective, from Paul's perspective, it is what is to be expected. It should be our norm. Because of the great mercy of God, all Christians should be building their lives on this mercy by worshiping God, by giving them of themselves totally and completely surrendered. It's the only logical, reasonable outcome. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you thanking you for the great mercies you have shared with us individually, Father. We know that we were helpless and we were guilty. And Father, you overcame our helplessness. You overcame our guilt. You forgave our sins by your own divine will. And Father... But because of that great mercy, we are here today worshiping you. 
May you drive this truth deep into our hearts and our minds, causing us to become more and more immune from the world around us in the sense of grabbing hold of their ideals and their motivations. And may we be motivated purely by your mercy to be the kind of people that you want us to be, being more and more conformed to the image of your son, Jesus. It is in his name that we pray.